everyone, this is Josh from the Solopreneur Grind podcast for episode 110. I'm really excited to be joined by Kisan Patel. He is the CEO and founder at mascience.com. Kisan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Awesome, Kisan. I'd love to hear uh, an intro from from the mouth of uh, of himself because it's really interesting. It's a topic that we've kind of danced around a little bit with previous guests, but haven't gone deep down the rabbit hole of of M and A. But before I do too much introducing for you, uh, could you introduce yourself? Tell everybody a little bit more about what you're focused on. Yeah, sure. Kisan Patel. I run a company called M and A Science. It's started as a pretty typical founder story. I spent about ten years as an M and A advisor. Took a lot of inspiration from the software industry, particularly how software engineers were utilizing project management tools to develop software. That thought, why not for M and A? Which led to starting Deal Room in 2012. We originally focused on the diligence management of M&A transactions. When a company goes to buy another company, they do a series of steps to really understand the business, make sure what's represented is true and accurate, identify the risks, start planning for what they're gonna do after they buy the equipment uh, company. And uh, over time, we continue to add functionality to manage the post-close activities and the pipeline when you actually find these opportunities and it evolved into a full lifecycle management solution for M&A. Uh, in that journey, I think one of the things we identified was the industry itself was very siloed and lacking standardization and best practices. Married the idea of using a platform, a podcast specifically, uh, as a means to enable practitioners to share some of the lessons learned, which we started documenting and published a book in 2020 called Agile M&A based on case studies of Google and Alassian and how they utilize Agile techniques in their M&A approach. That podcast has really evolved in a full digital media business. We own and operate an online school for teaching M&A. So now we have a combination of education and technology business lines that really uh, complement each other well when we work with larger corporations to optimize their M&A approach. Very cool. So every, everything under the umbrella of, of M&A you can probably help with or, or provide tools for. How did you get into it way back when? It's uh, unique. You, most people go to a, a nice Ivy League school or something of that sort and they fall in the investment banking track. I didn't do that. I started my story failing out of undergrad. Hmm. I was just a kid that always had a short attention span and, and struggled in school, um, made my way through high school. But when it came to college and courses became lecture based, I really struggled into uh, past them and ended up literally failing out of undergrad. Uh, which was a tough time. You know, I had to really start from the bottom, ended up working for family, which is a good hard lesson there of its own. Uh, worked with a family that owned a number of franchised restaurants and uh, started from the bottom, learned how to build a strong work ethic and that experience. But I wanted to get into real estate. I thought real estate was the career path I could take where you didn't necessarily have to have a college degree. And I went, got licensed, and went through um, uh, the journey of still struggling, you know, working, staying home with my parents, working part-time at Subway, trying to build a real estate career, and still struggled. I couldn't sell a house for the life of me. People didn't want to buy a house from a 21-year-old kid. Uh, but I was really interested in businesses, and I, I found my way to working with a little boutique consulting practice that two guys were doing as a startup. 
and uh, we joined with them and got immersed in the whole process of working with private investors to buy and sell businesses. I did it for a year. I did well there, really enjoyed reviewing financials, building a business case on why the investment makes sense, where the opportunities are. I took that experience a year later and started my own practice. Uh, I just wanted to have a clear strategy and focus on a little bit more of a narrow focus in terms of the assets I was selling. Mm -hmm. So I started with just, I think I remember selling gas stations at the beginning for about a year, year and a half, and then ended up selling hotels most of the career. Then also in the last about three years, I worked on small financial institutions, I think of community banks, helping them raise capital, buy side, sell side. Uh, mm. And then the recession happened and that's what prompted me to start looking at other things. I think at that period of time, Josh, I felt like I hit this glass ceiling. You start working on little deals, you build your way up, you work on 10 million, $20 million deals, uh, even those larger $50 million deals. But I felt like anything you touched around a hundred million, we'd always lose out to some bigger branded bank. And I, I, I was just frustrated. I felt like I hit this glass ceiling and wanted to find a different means. And then through technology, I, I, I found an opportunity to take some things we've learned, create solutions and be able to scale it out to a variety of different companies. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very, like I've had many, many guests on who flunk out of college and or high school. It, it almost seems to be like, not a common theme, but a common enough theme amongst entrepreneurs where, uh, you know, as you mentioned, maybe it's an attention span thing or just the way they learn isn't kind of meshed in with school. But it's it's a theme that I've definitely noticed. But I think yours is, is a little bit even more unique in the sense that you kind of tried a few things and in different areas and maybe they did or didn't work. How did you go from struggling as a real estate agent to even landing the job with those two consultants to begin with, right? Because even that's a bit of a stretch considering you had no experience in in what they were consulting on, right? Yeah, so I, I worked at this Baird Warner, it was a residential company I worked with. There's about a large office with about 90 brokers. And there's one guy in there that was selling commercial real estate. And I latched on to him. I, I just kept talking to him, picked his brain a little bit, tried to understand what he was doing. I wasn't super interested in selling medical buildings or office buildings or anything like that, but I liked that he was doing something closer to what I wanted to do. And I, I found encouragement through him to really pursue uh, getting into to selling businesses. You know, he pointed me to a few resources to start learning about it online. And I, I remember just starting to learn, find these platforms where people are listing companies for sale, calling folks, getting familiar with what that space looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember when I left the company, I thought, I'm just going to go out and do it on my own. I'm just going to go start selling businesses. And I, I started going in that direction. But then I think my dad introduced me because he was looking at, at some franchise business. And so he introduced me to the couple of guys. I think for them, they had an interesting start because they were creating a lot of leads through these online listings that they're posting. But a uh, vast majority of these respondents in the Chicago area were of Indian descent. So their strategy was let's hire this Indian kid to go, uh, you know, deal with these, all these leads we're generating and we probably can't understand half of them anyways. Uh, so that's, that's where they, they sort of put me in, in that box. And, but I had to run the full sales cycle. If I'm working with prospective buyers, I had to go help them find assets uh, to buy and do some of the search for them. And then if I found something they weren't interested, I would then turn around and say, hey, 
let me try to help you sell your business and and try to run a process to to sell that asset. Uh, but it was it was a, a unique experience because when you go investment banking, you always start from the bottom. You focus on the financial modeling and and you're working on larger deals typically. And then over years, you build your way up. Here, I was 21, 22 years old, and I had to do everything. There were small deals. There, were, I think the first deal I did was like 130,000 or something. Super tiny little mom and pop shop. Uh, so I learned to do that full cycle where you'd run it end to end. But then as you do larger deals, they're fundamentally the same. Right. You do a $100,000 deal and a $50 million deal, they're fundamentally the same. You may have more people involved looking over things, but the steps are very, very similar. Right. Um, so would so you I, say that's the better way to learn then is, is smaller deals, but maybe deal size almost doesn't even matter as much, but just the opportunity you had to kind of see it from A to Z? I, I would say yes, but the, the reason is more of the people experience. Mm. When you can manage the egos, facilitate this process between the consultants, lawyers, and various parties involved, when you learn how to do that, that's that's what drives the deal forward. Now, you can always pull in experts on the legal side, people in number crunch and things like that, but to be the facilitate the conversations, negotiations, those things, to get experience doing that early, I think was a big leg up because right. uh, you know, and part of me looking back wish i had a little more experience working with some of the larger investment banks to uh kind of broaden that view instead of jumping so early to go start my own practice uh but you know things things pan out for a reason Absolutely. you know and and then that was the other thing that really stood out from your your initial intro was you worked with them for one year only which seems like a short period of time when you're getting into like a new line of business we'll call it you know uh, m a in general you started working with some guys for one year then decided to go out on your own what was that thought process like like what was going on in your head what ultimately led you to to make that decision to go out on your own i think learning i wasn't i didn't feel like i was learning anything new this is i learned what i could from this role um, hmm. I want to go out and just do my own thing. I, I wanted to, I don't know, for somebody, I've always wanted to, to run a business. It's just always been wired that way that I wanted to build something and the, Hey, I'm, I'm contributing to help them build, but I didn't feel part of it. You know, I always felt like the employee there. So why not go set out and, and do something, build something. Uh, so I, I think that that was a big driver was I just really felt I learned enough that I can go out and go do it myself. Well, so why not just go for it? Yeah, no, it's it's a great attitude. What would you say, uh, Kisan, to, to someone right now who's out there, maybe they're in their early 20s or maybe late 20s or late teens and they're not sure what the heck to do. What pieces of advice would you would you give to them? Uh, you know, like I, I tell my own kids, because I, I didn't feel like I, I was set off to this world with a purpose. So I say, I'm going to give you one and then you can evolve it when you grow up as you grow. Uh, and I tell them to find what you love to do and, and be the best in the world at it. So trying different things to get a sense of what are you really interested? You know, we always get uh, shown all these career paths in, in our school program, but don't look at it that way. Look at it more as the world is full of problems, you know, everything's there. Businesses and products are there to solve a problem. 
you know, the coffee shops there, it solves a problem. People need coffee. They need the caffeine. They need something to drink. They need a place to meet up. Like it's, you know, start looking at it, what problems are you interested in solving? I think that can help you identify what you're passionate about. Um, and the reason that's important, because you want to play long. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I learned the hard way is when you jump from segment to segment, you don't develop that expertise. You don't develop that real level of success. It just takes a while to be highly successful in a specific area. So if you can identify an area you're highly passionate about that you can play long and say, hey, I, I can work towards this for 10, 20 years. Then, and I, I've just seen it time after time with entrepreneurs. And they do this 10 year run and they, they sell their business or whatnot, but the ec- exponential growth happens like year 10 through 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, can you, can you keep that, that drive to really stay in a segment to, to go deep and you'll find a, a very high level of success if you do that, generally speaking. Um, I, I think there's that piece. I think there's the other thing I notice a lot of entrepreneurs tend to want to build things or take products out and I'm guilty of that. I'm a builder in terms of a CEO persona. But I, I think that right now there's a lot of great products and solutions out in the market. And the bigger problem to solve is distribution. Hmm. So if you can even look at the industries you're interested in or products, services you're highly interested in, see if there's something that you really believe in and really focus on learning the distribution component. If you can work with that product and help, everybody's got that problem. Everybody's looking to increase their uh, ability to get their product and solution to the right customers that would benefit the most from it. So if you can find that solution you really believe in and help with that distribution and develop that skill set, I think that's the powerful thing. I would be able to to do that, have that skill set to understand the distribution model, how to take products out, how to sell them, produce the revenue. Then once you have that ability you can create products or, or, or whatnot or continue doing that with other products. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see this with the content, you know, it's almost like that content ink model uh, with the, there's a book published with that title, but it really gets you, the model is to focus on building the community. Can you become a subject matter expert in area, create the content, create the community, and then find what the community wants. I feel like our business evolved that way. When I mentioned we have several business lines, we have a community of MA practitioners that are striving to be the best. What do they need? Well, they need some educational resources. They need these templates. They need the f- proper frameworks. They need the tools. And we just ask them. Well, now mm-hmm. we're launching a series of roundtable events because they want to connect with each other. They just don't want to sit in on webinars and, and take it as a passive approach. They actually want to grow their network. So, well, let's create a platform for them to do that. Um, so I, I think that problem solving is the other thing that comes with it when you identify the area you want to go deep in. Uh, that's, uh, you know, the long game is when you look at everybody gets focused on the revenues and, and how much money they want to make, but that's the outcome. Right. And ultimately, you need to create the ability to generate value. So you have this specific cohort of customers you're targeting. Can you create your capabilities that allow you to generate value for them? And that's where having that focus, it, it'll increase over time. Oh yeah. Uh, and then that's that's where you really find success because now you've created this compelling ability to generate value for that target set of customers. And that's where you, the, the revenue and the income becomes the outcome of it. Absolutely. No, that, that's a great answer. 
I, I want to jump back to when, so you started the new business on your own. What were the first few months like? Like, what was the first day like, right? Because for some people, it's kind of interesting, especially because they may not have thought about this for years or, or decades. But I always love to ask about, hey, what were those first few weeks like or months like? And how did you get that first business off the ground? I think the first you're excited the first when you first open doors you're excited i remember i leased an office downtown chicago and uh the broker didn't know what to do with me because here's this kid <laughs> that was about 22 years old that's like hey i want to lease this tiny little 900 square foot office um i don't want to sign a lease can i just do month to month mm -hmm. and the guy had no idea what to do <laughs> next thing you know i'm talking to the owner of uh, the company mark realty this guy owns 30 40 of these buildings downtown uh, and it was so funny. And he's just like, look, I need a lease. Like, I can't just have you in there month to month. I'll tell you what, sign a one year lease. You don't have to personally guarantee it. Just, but give me a lease. So I, I, I signed up and had this tiny little office. I think I was paying like 1300 bucks a month of rent for, uh, got some cheap, cheap furniture. The stuff you have to comes in like the Ikea style flat box. You got to build together. Yeah. And just propped up about seven desks in there. And even though it was just me at the time working, uh, and, and I, I, I found a person to bring in. I, I found a person that just was on an H1 visa. He w wasn't happy where he was currently working and just like, uh, hire me, hire me as your assistant. Like, let me get out of this place. And I knew the guy was sharp. The guy's got an MBA degree from one of the uh, schools in France. And, um, I, you know, he just ended up really doing well. He ended up just being such a great asset that he, essentially became a partner in the practice that we were building um and we and then we grew that that firm you know the the thing though you had this excitement but there there was a period where it really died down and became more of a concern mm -hmm. that uh i started this business with maybe you know like ten thousand dollars of working capital uh and then not realizing how long it would really take to close a deal and, and produce revenue in the business I remember having to go to my dad to borrow money. I think I had to borrow something like 20,000. And he wasn't happy about that. You know, he gave me a hard time. I think he wrote like a whole interest note. I had to pay back with interest, like 9% or something, you know, a rate to it. Uh, so he's giving me a hard time. And I remember just like, and he's like, I'm not gonna give you more money. And I remember being so concerned. It's one of those things where you're like, man, am I already gonna hit like three months in? Are we already gonna fail? And we got lucky that we um, got a uh, deal for a company that was going bankrupt. And it was a 363 asset sale that the bank was doing. And they let us represent these assets for sale. Uh, so we ended up selling this chain of, of, of gas stations in, uh, in Indiana. Uh, and that's where the firm just started. You know, we started picking up there. And that first year, we did about eight or nine different deals. Um, I think the second, I just lost interest in, that was the same thing, you jump around. I was like, you know, I'm tired of selling these businesses. I feel like the owners are a lot like their business. They don't, you know, they're like nonstop. Uh, and then that's where I, I wanted to shift my focus. I, I remember doing some, a little bit of work with the fast food chains and some healthcare deals. But then I, th I really liked the hospitality industry and just started with the small private businesses and then built that practice up where I was doing corporate work for brands like Kimpton, Extended Stay America. Hmm. That's very cool. And and then talk about the, I don't know if we, if, like, do we call it a pivot when you started focusing more on the, on the tech? Obviously you're still in the same 
world, right? The, the M&A world. But what was that transition like or, or shift of focus or what, what would you call it? It was, it was like really abandoning this business because I didn't wind <laughs> it down. You know, the recession happened. I think I was going into like 2007 with anticipation it was going to be a record year for us. And it turned out to be the worst year for us. Uh, it took a loss and it just, I, I knew it's one of those things I didn't want to sit there and pray that it gets better. So I, I basically wound down the practice and was doing it solo where I was on my own representing a handful of clients on some of the deals that they're working, which was mostly buying distressed things, buying distressed hotels and stuff like that. Um, and then I, but I was always interested in tech. I've always been interested in tech, even building the practice. I'd always pay attention to our website, constantly update our website. I'd build some, our own tools in house. Uh, so I was, I was interested in it and I, I didn't jump into this thing. I, I started one of these deals I was trying to do, I was trying to buy a company right before this recession kicked off. And, um, I was trying to buy it and flip it. I was going to buy a privately held little healthcare clinic business and flip it to a publicly traded company, which would have been a nice little deal. Uh, but you know, things don't always happen the way you want them to. But when I was doing diligence and I was going through this public company's S1 registration, what caught my attention was one of the acquisitions they did where they purchased a hundred a portfolio of a hundred dot coms for about $6 million. Hmm. I thought this is really, really interesting. And what I realized was they basically created this lead generation network uh, for all their clinics based on this portfolio uh, of domains that they had at the traffic that they could drive towards it. So this is interesting. And I, I started modeling off of it. I started buying financial.coms. I saw the cost per click was substantially higher than most other industries. Like back then it used to be 25 cents, 50 cents for a click. And then these finance store.coms are getting about two, $3 a click. I started buying, I think at one point I had about 500 of them. Hmm. Uh, and then it was a literally basic thing. I said, it was just to test it out. I remember when I first started buying them was I put a blog post up and then I wrote a little script where when the user refreshes a page, it would put a new blog post up. It'll just rotate through 10 different articles. And for whatever reason, that just Google thought I was constantly updating content. And it just ranked this keyword domain really high. Uh, and some of them would get high. They get like 90,000 visits a month. Cool. And then you have AdSense on there and you're generating revenue. So then it becomes, whoa, let's scale this out. And I, I remember building some pretty sophisticated stuff where I, I think after some iterations, we ended up with like a whole portal system with 200 websites that were lit up. And Ooh. it would have this huge bank of about 5,000 articles in one of these uh, enterprise document management systems. Uh, and it would pull in articles based on the keyword to display. And it was all automated. It was a pretty cool stuff that we built. And that's, you know, one day Google changes the algorithm and just <laughs> all, all off the grid, all, all gone and, and game over. Uh, but in, in that experience, when I started doing the custom work and working with some of these engineers in Singapore and Vietnam, I, I got exposed to these project management tools. I, I started, and I, I'm trying to remember, Jira was one of them. And then there was another one that got some really, it was just interesting. I thought this is actually pretty cool because I, I struggled with managing their task on Excel. You have one Excel, you have another Excel sheet, you have like seven Excel sheets going on. 
Uh, and when you have this project management tool, it organized it much better. Uh, and that, that's where it started getting the ideas because going back and saying, hey, I, I want to, I need to focus on the industry I actually know. So I want to do something in M&A. And I remember, I think I had some idea in between, again, no little thing I was modeling out, didn't work out. But I said, why don't I build a tool to run an M&A process? Then you get that same entrepreneur dilemma, like feature creep. So mm-hmm. you have an outline of like, okay, here's like this core thing that would solve the problem. But then you're like, well, we should add this feature, and this feature, and this feature. And next thing you know, you have this 20 page outline. Uh, then you're like, okay, it's all, where do I start? And I thought at the time, start from the very beginning when somebody needs to go find a deal. So we started building a marketplace to help buyers and sellers connect to find the deal, thinking we'd over time build the rest of the components out that we should start with that first step. And we, spent about a year build well we didn't spend a year building it we, we built prototyped it pretty quick i think within six months we had it out the door we ran it so about 13 months in we realized we built this sophisticated dumpster for deals we had mm-hmm. about 200 deals listed 1300 users i looked at this i'm like all these deals are trash like they're not <laughs> a single deal i would invest in they're all yeah. stuff that is belong in the dumpster uh, so that's where we went back to the drawing board and that's where, like the other hard lesson in there, we always, when I talk to other entrepreneurs starting out, validate the problem you're solving and from the beginning. Like you have assumptions, whether you realize it or not, you're going to go convince your friends and family that you're solving a great worthy problem, but you need to take more of a scientific approach. And you think you can Google like customer development interviews or there's different ways of approaching it. But if you can build some questions that are designed to be unbiased. You can identify cohorts of people. You can reach out to them. Even the response of them caring to take time to talk to you about this problem you're trying to solve is an indicator if it's even of interest to them. Uh, And then talk to them saying, hey, what's your biggest problem? Say you're podcasting and building a solution for improving podcasts. You know, Josh, what's the biggest challenge you have as a podcaster? And just sit back and listen. Mm-hmm. And just just try to be as a because when you do that and you do a pattern of them because I always talk to these entrepreneurs and I tell them go do about forty of these interviews and see let's let's go through the findings see what you learn you might find a bigger problem to solve uh, so we we took that approach I remember doing that out of 1871 in Chicago in the little incubator center with a couple of interns and that's where we really realized was the management part was really where it was at like forget about the front people that have problems finding their deals especially in the space that we're targeting, which was this middle market, like, uh, you know, the $100 million up transactions, uh, they don't have a problem. They can find the deals. It's just the management part. And I, I remember one of the guys at William Blair was very specific that it's this Excel tracker that I really hate mm-hmm. because every time I get it in, our firm's so meticulous on responding to every little line item. And I could end up with 300 requests for information then when I provide this, they have follow-up questions. Then I got to go, next thing you know, we're trying to have this conversation in Excel tracker. And then I got to link all these documents to this virtual data room. And those products are clunky and overpriced. Uh, and I was just like, wow, this is highly, highly inefficient. This is where we need to laser focus on. And that's where even like those early inspirations of project management, this is where it belongs is right here. Uh, and that's where we started, keep doing those series of, of interviews and started modeling a solution. Uh, and I, I you know, wireframes are commonly used. I personally would prefer to just hire a student to do mock-ups because a lot of people don't, they see wireframes and they don't get it. It's a little more of a technical uh, approach for drawing. Uh, so I, I hired some new students uh, to do mock-ups 
And then we just, you start showing it to folks, again, get feedback. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think? It's easy to make changes on a mock-up. You don't want to build a product, then try to make changes. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to, to make changes after you code it. Uh, and then that, that's where really we kept that, that iterative approach and allowed us to build a solution that we have even today that we still use fundamentally. Uh, and today that's our approach. Our approach is always, if you, when I look at the product, I don't, there's not even 5% of it are my ideas. Mm-hmm. It's all just what are you learning for the market and that the feedback that you're getting and building off of it. Uh, so that, that's where we've got our direction after having that, that tough start. And there's, there was more challenges, you know, the go to market is a whole big challenge of itself. We thought, Oh, let's, let's sell like the competitors are selling the big encumbrance, bad idea. They got sales reps. They pay extremely well. They got bottomless expense cards. So they're whining and dining. We didn't realize that these people we weren't selling against a better technology we're selling against who's spending the most money in the client. And I would sit in on our early sales reps or even myself trying to sell with them. And we would go through demo the product and they'd be like, yeah, this looks really cool. So uh, what do you guys do? You know, like your competitors, they buy us ball game tickets and take us out for these fancy dinners. Like, what, what do you guys do for your clients? And then we were just like, we didn't know what to say. Like, we're, we're not trying to bribe you. And I, I did. I knew that that was the wrong thing, right? I don't want to get in a game where I got to pay for your your business. Uh, that's not what we set out to do. That's not the the, the right thing. Uh, so we, we we kind of hit a challenge there. But what it was interesting enough, we we found a different market. We ended up shifting our focus to corporates because we realized the banks they weren't incentivized to drive efficiency to their bottom line. The guys that get the deals they get paid a percentage off the top. They don't right. care what happens after that. They don't care about the net bottom. The people that make the decisions and the technology, the junior bankers, they just, they want to get out of there in a year. They don't really care. They're not there. They hate their job. They're frustrated. They don't like the culture is extremely toxic. It's very much top-down management. Uh, so we weren't getting anywhere there. It wasn't fun to sell in that space. When we started working with corporates, they're very value-driven. If you can demonstrate and create value for them, they appreciated it. They wanted to work with you. And that's where we identified our early adopters were actually there and their go-to-market shifted because when we talked to them and spend the time to validate how do you want to buy and then we shifted to create quality content for them and that's where we got involved in podcasting and said well if we can create quality content and there's obviously a lot of room to do that there's not a lot of standardization we started building interviewing folks and extracting some lessons learned and built that into uh, business lines of its own very cool. Yeah, no, there's there's so much to take away from that. That's uh, a really interesting journey, too. And, and I just find it kind of, I guess you can say funny because you, you had this big problem in mind that you thought you were going to start on and then you ended up moving away to what many would describe as much harder, right? Like building a marketplace of buyers and sellers, but then eventually came back to your kind of original original concept that uh, that ended up working. So it is funny how things uh, work out, right? Even even if it takes a little bit longer. So can we talk about like, how did that almost, maybe we'll call it like a light bulb moment. I don't know if it was, but like thinking about the content side of things, because obviously that's so important these days, number one, it can be huge for dis- distribution, which as you said, is a big, 
it's it's a big problem for a lot of people. But as you said earlier, it's all like you'll go to any business owner and it's something they all want more of, right? More sales, more revenue, more more distribution. So how did you guys come to that realization? And then what, what were the first few steps you took? Or what are what are some good content creation strategies or distribution even related strategies? Yeah, I, yeah at the time I knew we needed to do something for marketing. And uh, I went to a friend I met through a networking event and I, I asked him, I said, I need some advice on this because we're early stage startup and this and that. And uh, I was telling him, you know, we do these phone calls where we interview folks, we learn a lot from them, the feedback sort of loop that we create. And he's like, man, you gotta do a podcast. And uh, I was like, what the hell is a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> when, when was this like around what time just for 2017? Oh, wow. So podcasting and, uh, was pretty decent at that point, I guess, right? It would not not obviously as big as it has been the last couple of years but grown a little bit yeah it's uh, i i had no idea so this is a, a friend of mine andy that's like hey you know and so they, they he pushed me he's like you got to do it there's actually this conference coming in town this podcast movement happened to have been in chicago that year uh, and I, I went there and, and got to go talk to podcasters i got to meet all these vendors learn about the ecosystem, try a bunch of microphones out. It was cool. It's all right. I'll give it a shot. Let me try this. I said, at the very least, we'll take these podcasts and we'll write blog posts from it, get our marketing mm -hmm. going that way. And, uh, and then that, that thing, it, 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 the first year, I didn't even look at the numbers. It just I don't think anybody was listening to it. Uh, we just wrote those blog posts, posted it. I mean, like the second year, I got an email from somebody that's like, hey, I like your podcast. I was like, oh, cool. This is my first fan here. Uh, and then I started looking at the numbers and realized like, oh, we're actually people are listening to this stuff. Uh, and then I think around the third year is when I brought in a actual marketing resource. I think we were at that point where we went to market, hired some sales reps, went to market and didn't do very good. You know, we're selling to the banks. We didn't do very good. And then I came back and I said, okay, let's focus on the marketing. Uh, and this is right around the time we started shifting to, to corporate focus. And she started coming in with the basics. Here's social media. Let's make the blog better, uh, create more content. And then we really blended that podcast together with this marketing function to, to make it the center of it. And the, the strength we created from doing that was the way we repurposed content. So we would transcribe all these podcasts and create the blog posts, we could take uh, maybe a couple around the same topic and put an ebook together uh, and just kept going with it, just kept creating content. In the fourth year, we had COVID happen. We, got, we went to lockdown in the fourth year. Uh, that's where I, I was like, okay, this is, we're about 20 people headcount at the time. And we started picking up traction at the time. We started getting some good logos with the corporate accounts. We're still early. I said, okay, we're, nobody's gonna be buying anything. Let's double, triple down on marketing. So we started live streaming and we didn't even have video up until that point. When we started live streaming, we added the video component to it. Uh, and then the industry itself, everybody's canceling all their conferences left and right. Uh, I enjoyed going to those conferences. I was disappointed. I thought, well, this isn't what they should do. They're supposed to pivot and figure out their digital distribution model. Like, why don't we make a point and show them how it's done? <laughs> So we, out of nowhere, just announced our own conference on June 9th and 10th of 2020. 
and it turned out to be a huge hit. We had about 50 speakers from top firms, Microsoft, Google, Cisco, IBM, SAP. I have uh, 1,500 people uh, signed up for it. And uh, it, it just got her name out there big time. And then we, we, I mean, after that, everybody figured out they have to do something. So everybody started boom, boom, doing all online events. Right. Uh, this was a virtual, it, like a virtual conference? It was all virtual. It was yeah. all virtual. So then we then we kept that series. But then, you know, what was interesting was we always kept getting feedback. Always tell, tell us what do you want? And we, we asked all these people for feedback. Tell us well, how can we make this event better? What changes do you want to see in the industry? And the one common thing we heard from the, this group of people was they wanted to know the practical how to's of M&A. And that's what we realized, like there's this big void with the training programs out there. Most of them are ran by consulting firms that use it to sell consulting services. Nobody's really creating something of high, high quality that is updated with today's approaches. And that's where we started talking to some of the practitioners that we've interviewed for the podcast and said, hey, would you want to come and just teach? Teach like anything, <laughs> whatever, it's little, we just want to see if this works. Mm -hmm. So we started uh, building out courses and just it's different than a podcast. You're, you gotta spend a lot more resources in editing because you're chopping it up into a microservices learning format. You put a little quiz, completion badge. And uh, we just did, I think we, we first started, we started doing that, you know, just getting the idea or identifying who'd want to teach. But then we, we started pre-selling it before we even built the thing. We just ran out saying, hey, look, this is like a coming soon thing. Do you want to early sign up? You know, super cheap, 240 bucks a year. Uh, I think we had about 10 people sign up. I said, all right, good enough validation. Let's, mm -hmm. let's do it. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's build this thing. And uh, I think we, that was the last year was the first year we ran it. We did about 100,000 revenue first mm. year. Low, we increased the price 50% and we're still seeing an increase in signups this year. So it's, um, I think that's the, that goes back to that feedback. You gotta keep the feedback loop there. But the, the content too, it's, it's again, a form of repurposing content. We just ended up commercializing it. We put a lot, I mean, we need to, cause it, it costs a lot more to create that kind of course format. But now we're actually organizing them and creating certifications, uh, so it continues to evolve. Um, but the, now, for the content strategy, it, it ties with that focus, because when you look at today, and I think there's a lot of the influencers in, in our uh, uh, you know software world will tell you that you need to build in a media business in any tech company you're you're taking a market. I, I think that's true because that's something that we did early um that played out for the long run like all this seo and stuff like that that's a long-term game but it it builds your brand it gets you very conscious about how are people thinking of your company and builds trust that's the biggest thing um i think the thing that helped us was that when we did the podcast it wasn't just to do a podcast it was there was a mission behind it right we had this mission of enabling practitioners to share lessons learned that's what the whole mission was and it allowed it made it easier to get people to come speak it was obviously hard in the beginning i tried to get family members or whoever i could to go speak on there uh but it, you know when you had that mission to constantly reference it just got easier and easier and then going into the fifth year uh, it, it definitely pays up but it takes a while i don't know in this market i think it's a lot harder to get something like that going when we started there's about five of them I remember the numbers were like a thousand downloads the first year, seven thousand the second year, twenty-eight thousand third, 
120,000 the fourth year hmm. and then 240,000 the fifth year. So it, you know, it definitely takes time to build that up. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to be good at it and you got to be consistent because there's a lot of other people doing it now, right? It, podcasting specifically and then blogging, social media. So you got to put enough time and effort because it's, you know, we're, we're in the, we're in the, uh, what's it called? The, uh, scrolling economy, right? So if, if you yeah. can't, if you can't grab and keep people's attention, it's tough. Uh, Kisan, this has been great. Just a, a couple last questions here. Do you have one or two tips for maybe like a smaller company or a newer company on a budget in terms of like content creation? I love what you were talking about with repurposing and, you know, making the most of, you know, maybe one big piece of content and repurposing it as many ways as possible. Do you have any like one or two tips on, on how maybe a company on a budget could do something like that a little more effectively or make the most of what they can? You know, that's uh, like my, my buddy, Andy, I took him out for dinner about last year and said, Hey man, I really just want to thank you. You're the one that got me into podcasting. It's been such a big win for us. And he looked, kind of looked straight at me. He's like, you know, at the time, that's like the only thing I thought you could afford to do. <laughs> so like, well, thanks, you know, yeah. but I, uh, I, 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 I like, I do like the, the platform of the podcast, even though it's not like the immediate win game, it helps you in a lot of different ways because one, you could reach people that you may not otherwise be able to reach if you just went out to them and asking for their time. Mm-hmm. because it changes the dynamics you're not like hey give me your time so i can pitch you or get advice from you it's hey i want to feature you i want to get your message out there to, to this audience uh so it, it changes the dynamic and give you access i mean for even to this year we've got a couple of public company ceos on, on our podcast those are people that wouldn't it would be difficult for me to get a, a meeting with them just for advice or whatnot mm-hmm. um so i think that's one thing it, it does it does actually help your business because if you're doing like an account-based sales approach or things of that sort, you can get in front of those those people that would otherwise be hard to get in front of. Uh, it, um, it gives you a lot of that content to work with. You know, you can start building that out if you can start putting up more of the subject matter expert type of content on your website, things like that. You can do those, uh, the clickbait, put a downloadable PDF was easy to build off of that. Because you could do a little theme and say, okay, let me, find three people around this one topic and that's related to our industry. Um, and then it's easier too, when you can start thinking of your content as funnel or here's my top funnel, right. broad changes in the industry. Here's more specific problem our folks are hitting. And then here's how we solve them. Uh, the other thing it does improves your communication skills quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I think that's an, another valuable thing is when you, you have these conversations, you're doing a good job interviewing Josh. Thank you're you. asking good follow-up questions. You're layering it. You're well, I mean, stories. along your point, like I've, I've done it now 109 times. Right. So like I, I was, I would think if I were to, you know, if you or anybody were to go back and listen to episodes, you know, one through 30, they would probably be okay, I think. And then, you know, slowly, slowly get better, but I couldn't agree more. Right. Like the amount of prep and, and, what has to go into having a quote unquote, like smoother conversation has just gone way down. Cause I've done it uh, literally 109 times, right? Like you get that many reps with anything and it's going to go a little bit better. Right. A uh, big time. Do you do uh monitor your recordings? Uh, what, what do you mean by monitor? 
So if you, I, I'm not in my studio, I'm, I'm on the road right now, but if you use um, an audio interface, you can listen to the recording as it's getting recorded, which would include your own voice. Huh. When no. you do that, that's, it takes a little bit to get used to because you're hearing yourself talk as you talk. That'll make you highly conscious about filler words, like how you're... A lot but of would that be distracting? My concern there is if I can hear my own voice, that might is that you'll distracting get, at all? You'll get used to it. In oh, fact, yeah? you'll probably start liking and appreciating your voice more. But I, uh, it's it, 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 there's you know, there's some USB mics that do it. I don't think it's it's as great as if you got like a Focusrite audio interface, and then you can do like an XLR mic. Then you can plug your headphones right there and just listen that that's big time i i thought about even having our sales reps with that kind of setup so they can improve mm. the way they speak when you use more filler words you don't sound as confident so if you can eliminate that listen to yourself i ramble a little much i'm working on that and speak a little bit more concise responses but obviously you can listen to yourself back is another approach to make those kind of improvements but that's uh, another thing with with that podcast setup. If you can actually monitor yourself, interesting, big, big, big improvement in communication. I'm, I'm, I'll definitely look into that. That's uh, I, I've never heard anybody suggest that, or, or even uh, oops, I just yeah, almost speaking of mics, almost yanked mine out. Um, interesting. No, I'm I'm, I'm going to have to look into it. Uh, awesome, Kisan. This this has been great. I mean, I'm getting live. You know practical tips uh, by the minute here so this is really great it was great having you on it was great uh, listening to your story and and getting a lot of these tips uh, just wondering if you have one or two last piece of advice maybe somebody's out there working a nine to five a job they don't like or beginning of you know maybe they started their own company they're going through the tough you know the tough times you have any just like one or two general pieces of advice or messages you would tell them you know, this is probably the big thing I'm working on with my kids at, at home. But it, I, I talked to them a lot about empathy, and I just feel like it plays in so many different contexts. Because a lot of times, even as an entrepreneur, we get fixated on our agenda. When we have our meetings, we get very much wrapped up around what we want to say to the other person, what we want to get out of the meeting. But if you can put all that to the side, if you can enter conversations, assume what you know is wrong or you don't know anything, uh, it'll put you in this intense listening mode where you can really spend the time to understand the other person, how they think, how they feel, why they feel that way, what are their goals, what are they trying to achieve, what are the challenges they're coming across. And if you can align yourself around helping the other person achieve those things, you're going to end up progressing a lot further. Hmm. In fact, the fact that you take the time to really listen and understand, they become more open to reciprocate and listen to, to you. I, I think that's just, it goes so far. It goes so far in a lot of situations, professionally, personally, conflict resolution. You can argue our points to death, Josh, if we don't get along about what mic to use for this interview. But if I can spend the time to understand, why, why do you think the way you do? Why, what, like truly understand it and even tell you that, explain it back to you to let you know I really understand that changes things. It opens things up to be more receptive to understand my views so we can actually come to some resolution or terms. I, mean, I think that's the, the big thing we, we tend to lose sight of as an entrepreneur in the beginning because we want to push to get things done. But if we really need to spend the time to listen and, and empathize with these customers, 
and we're we're trying to help solve their problems at the end of the day that's where we create value is solving problems for our customers absolutely it's a it's a great point and it's a it's a great note to end on uh kisan great having you on the show if people want to learn more about you or any of your companies or solutions or if they want to get in touch where do you recommend that they go if they're interested in learning about m a there's a lot more careers than banking in m a uh, we have tons of content around it and last year we started a diversity scholarship to encourage women and people with diverse backgrounds to get involved and get completely free uh, that's all on mascience.com and myself i'm usually on linkedin just kisan k-i-s-o-n patel awesome we'll link to those in the description kisan thanks again for coming on the show really appreciate it thanks for having me josh